Two questions haunt every life, writes Andy Crouch. The first, what are we meant to be? The second, why are we so far from what we're meant to be? Hello and welcome to Restoring the Soul, a podcast dedicated to helping you close the gap from what you're meant to be and what keeps you from being all that. I'm your producer, Brian Beatty. Thank you for listening. Today's podcast is a response to the murder of Mr. George Floyd last week in Minnesota and the swell of lament, protest, and division that has resulted from his tragic death. What you're about to hear is like none of our previous episodes. Michael spoke with his friend and colleague from Denver Seminary, Dr. Reggie Moore, a professor and specialist in the treatment of historical trauma within the African-American community. As you will hear, the conversation unfolded, and then took an unexpected turn that left both men feeling as if they had just taken a major risk. And according to Dr. Moore, this very conversation became a model of the type of dialogue that must happen to heal the wounds of racial division in our world today. So let's pick up the conversation between Dr. Reggie Moore and your host, Michael John Cusick. The listeners to the Restoring Soul podcast, as you're listening now to Dr. Reggie Moore and I talking, this is a real conversation of two men. And so if you're listening to this, this is not a podcast where we're trying to make this really slick. So I'm, I'm just going to speak from the gut. I watched the video of Mr. Floyd being murdered, and it's been hard for me to say that I watched a murder as opposed to I watched police mistreat or, I mean, it was a murder. And I, I immediately had two reactions. One was, my God, if I was there, I, I wouldn't have just said he can't breathe. I, I, wouldn't have, I, I, I literally would have run up, and I felt this impulse watching that video to push the one man out of the way and, and to, to turn to the cop. And, and then, of course, they would pull a gun or a stun gun and take me out. And, um, and then I thought, what would be the point? Nothing would ever change. And this is just going to continue to happen. And so I felt this nervous system, I've got to do something, and then this frozen, what's the point? And I vacillated back and forth between those two, but there's a reality that I have known and seen that at moments, at my better moments, I've had a desire for engagement with a process to do something, and I think Reggie, that's been a substitute for me wrestling with the superiority in my own heart, the judgments that I was brought up with, my own physical reactions, um, and all the ways that I can justify that. Um, I used to run a counseling center in a, in a urban homeless shelter uh, with predominantly a, a, a black population. And so I can say, oh, well, I, I did that. And there's still something inside of me that doesn't want to face 
this reality that's a part of our everyday living. And I don't just want it to go away when the news cycle shifts. Hmm. I, I want the world to be different so that no one, um, myself, my children, my loved ones, you, any African-American, any person of color, any human being to ever have to systematically, chronically live with what I'm now beginning to see Mm. is much more alienating and undignifying and violent and assaultive and cruel and demonic. The, The subjugation is still there in a way that I really don't understand. And so that's where I'm at. And I want to hear what it's like for you. I just have one follow-up question before we transition, if you don't mind. I really appreciate your generosity. At the moment of his crying out for his mother, I have to shut the video off. What was it like for you to see a man on the ground crying for breath and crying for his mother? We've all had mothers. I only read that. I did not hear that. And I've not gone back and watched the video. Um, it's too real. Um, but when I heard that, and when I think of it now, it moves me to tears. Because to hear the voice of a human being crying for mom, for mommy, for mama, uh, that's a child. It's easy for me to think of other, a black man, uh, a, a Sudanese rebel, the Taliban, if they're a grown-up and if they're, if they're vilified because of their adult participation, their label, their difference, I can, I can stay distant and detached from that. Yes. But as, as I hear the cry of mom, mommy, that's a person. Um, that's a person. And um, not only is it a person, but it's the cry of the helpless child wanting to be held, wanting to be nourished, wanting safety, wanting to be wanted. And that's why this has been so disturbing to me. Some basic attachment. You're talking about basic attachments to human life and to the first source of safety, to connection to the um, the woman who uh, was there at our first breath, but was also there before we even drew our first breath. The lack of primal safety and the lack of primal attachment that is called for at that point in time was stunning for me, and I had to turn the video off. You mentioned uh, Toni Morrison, um, her novel, I think The Blue Aside, talks about this is a story that's not to be told. Uh, that that's the that's the most recent Toni Morrison novel I've read. It was it was mm-hmm. cruel. It was it was devastating. I almost didn't finish it. Mm-hmm. And so, what I would like for your listeners to um, imagine is, and I had imagined myself. Let's just say that we're entering this conversation, and there's absolutely no judgment, su- suspending judgment, on what you felt or heard about that particular moment or any of the protests since then, I think we, I have to have a basic 
understanding of my reactions and how I feel of my humanity as my humanity as a black man, as my humanity as a person. And what about that particular situation pierced um, or transcended a veil of what is decency and what is right, what is good, what is pure. And the violation is so thorough for me that I'm still struggling with what categories there are to put in there. So I think when we enter these conversations, everyone must bring an awareness. Um, This is how it affected me. And even if the awareness didn't affect you the way it's affected me or, or someone else, it's okay. It's our starting points of conversation. And there's no judgment on that. It's just where I am today. Yesterday, my heart was hurting. It was in pain, and I thought, I need to go to get an EKG. And I called my doctor through telehealth, and we decided that symptoms that I was having were more related to anxiety. And so taking an anxiety pill twice a day to manage the somaticness of the symptoms that I've had since, um, not just the, the incident itself, but watching the riots or watching the protest, which then some are hijacked, watching presidential responses or, or lack thereof, which I think could be more substantial, more building of a center. And so even when I got this invitation from you, my first thought is I recoiled. I literally recoiled um, because I did not want to be co-opted. First, I don't want to co-opt the narrative of Floyd's real life and to put my stuff into there so as to dishonor the particularities of his story or of his his journey. Uh, And then also after that, I didn't want to have my own journey or sense of self co-opted And because my narrative has been one to be more of uh, a white apologist, I have to guard for those things in my narrative of coming to this conversation of doing truth-telling, my own, not gospel truth-telling, my own truth-telling without necessarily letting people off the hook uh, who might bear some responsibility in that particular instance or who therefore have derived uh, privilege or power or prestige from incidences similar, even though they didn't take part directly in that. Can you say more what you mean by not wanting to be a white apologist? It's a long story for me personally in terms of um, defending white people against or, or white structures or white systems against themselves so as to, one, possibly not have some type of harassment, to be um, a good old boy, if you will, to to buy into it just enough to avoid sanction, uh, to avoid the tension that arises in me uh, of of using my own voice or saying that's not right, to actively protest, if you will. Um, those things are usually important. You know, I've been educated in predominantly white institutions um, all my life. And so my education has told me there's a certain way that you carry yourself, that I carry myself in those spaces in order to progress, to not upset the apple cart, uh, and then somehow to gain some type of rewards from, from doing that. That is something that I'm still in recovery from at this point in time and have to 
really be mindful of so that I honor myself, uh, the dignity God has put in me, my father, my mother, my community, to, to honor that and be cognizant of that is hugely important. And so coming to an exchange, I have the right to ask, the personal power to ask, what's it been like for you? So yesterday I had, I think, like seven or eight calls where people, the, the number one question is, how are you? And my question back is, well, how are you? Give me something before you take. Mm. Bring something to the table that we can have a fair exchange because fair exchange is no robbery. So if I'm here to educate or to inform at least my own personal experience or experiences for um, a larger community, what are you bringing? And if you're not bringing the totality of yourself, good, bad, ugly, and indifferent, then this exchange is a form of extortion. It's a form of extortion. It's where transactional. It's transactional. And it's, 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 not, it's not even. Because if I give this much and you're giving this much, it's not even. So I want to ask their listeners, what was it like for you? When you get by yourself, what was it like for you, and no one else is around, to experience that moment? Apart from media, apart from conversations, what was that like for you? And can you be true and honest with yourself what that's like? No judgment, just, just honesty and awareness. Because something had to have happened inside of us. At least that's my belief when we saw that. How is this landing on you? Am I making sense? You're tracking? How, what's going on? Well, I have, a, I have a, a phone call in about an hour, and I'm just imagining uh, this person who knows I'm talking with you and they know of you. Uh, they're going to say, so how was your, your conversation with Reggie? And right now I would respond and say, it wrecked me. Um, I'm feeling pretty emotional here. I'm seeing you on the screen. Um, I really have a love and care for you because of our long-term relationship. Um, but you're also seeing me on the screen. And I knew this wouldn't just be a Q&A intellectual, but once again, you've disarmed me by your curiosity about me and honored yourself um, by wanting me to bring something to the table instead of use you. And I can only imagine uh, through my understanding of history and the, the small amount that I have of black experience as a privileged white male is you use a term like fair exchange equals no robbery. And that, um, that blacks have been stolen from um, in America since white Europeans started bringing them here from Africa and to sit with me and say, no, I'm not going to let you take from me. Uh, I want you to give, I want you to bring something to the table and then I'm happy to give. That's very disarming. And um, as a person, first and foremost, uh, I have always respected you and 
it makes me respect you more. And I think, I know it takes a lot of courage and integrity to your own self to ask that of me and to invite me to make it an exchange. Well, I think to shift the narrative of it being a one-way narrative, um, I could probably quantify how much my anxiety would decrease just by finding that voice or saying, I'm uncomfortable with how that com- this conversation is going because this is what I'm aware of. However, I'm also honoring my own personal dignity because in times past, um, it's one thing to take a person's stuff materially to oppress them that way. But it's another thing when the person who's being oppressed surrenders their dignity in the process to avoid oppression or to appease um, white curiosities, um, white guilt, white fragility. Those things are, are uh, so this is how I am learning to answer that question for myself personally. It does not apply necessarily to other people. But let me ask another question. Yeah, go ahead. Had that, and I'm asking your listeners to personalize it again, even more so. Mike, how would you have felt or what would have went on in you if that was if it was my neck that was being kneeled on? I can't even fathom that. It just, I I can't even fathom that. I realize it may not be a fair question, but I think it's, again, it's a question that we all have to ask ourselves in terms of our media allows us to social, social distance from the act. And therein lies maybe some of the challenges for us is that how do we personalize these narratives in a way by taking the degrees of separation and making it more personal with someone that we know? And having to sit in that. Part of the information that we have is somewhat deceptive, I think, because we can be desensitized to it. And so asking a personal question is my second big ask. What is it that went on inside of you when you saw that? How can you personalize it in a way that might um, intensify or reveal something very good something very, very good in each one of us by imagining that that was someone we knew. The rage, the anger, the sorrow, the despair, the fury, all those things are quite good given the depth of violation or perpetration that occurs. 
and just like you're doing right now, and like I'm doing, we'd have to sit in silence. And then the question comes, Mike, as you've been imagining this and sitting in silence, how are you doing? Um, I feel like shit. Um, I, uh, I practice silence, but for this, this past seven to 10 days, I've been more internally restless. And even today, Me my... Too a quote scheduled time to be silent and still and do centering prayer. Couldn't do it. Mm-hmm. Shuffled papers, replaced light bulbs. Um, I, I just couldn't do it. And as we're talking, I was like, okay, this is powerful. Uh, and I know Reggie and he could go on for a long time. So I'm going to be the facilitator. And at some point step in <laughs> because I, I was so uncomfortable and again, this is not drama. This is not an act. This is not a scripted podcast. This is real. This is real. Yeah, we're not trying to have an emotional experience for people. But um, if this is what I feel right now, when your presence and strength and requiring me to engage with you, um, it, it, it's that similar kind of disarming where I feel exposed but not in a guilty way, because I, I know that there's no judgment and you set it up that way. And I know your heart is, is not to judge or shame, but I feel exposed with my feelings. It feels like there is such a raw, vulnerable, oh my gosh, this is what's really there. And it's there a lot more than I know. And um, yeah, all of those emotions you listed. And the big one for me, is powerlessness. Mm-hmm. I think that, um, again, um, I really appreciate you allowing me. You said beforehand, take this wherever you wanted to take it for. So, Mike, I'm working on something for myself in terms of my own healing uh, or, or stability right now as we're talking pro- process. Because I mean this as nothing more than an advocacy, an advocacy that whatever is at that place where it's difficult to sit in that silence, I'm advocating for the best of that because um, there's something profoundly good there. And there's a gentleman by the name of Pablo Otaola. He's from Young Life. And he talks about the theology of lament. The theology of lament. And I think that's where we're being asked to grow, or at least some of us are being asked to grow, is in a theology of lament. Um, especially when you talked about the powerless. And what is it like for people who live with that sense of powerlessness we're talking about on, on a continual basis with a sense of hypervigilance, a high, sense of hyperarousal, um, and not being able to change things systemically because they're not changing? How are those individuals to be empowered in those situations? Uh, some of that involves lament, some of that involves protest. Um, I am not buying, for your listeners, 
I am by not necessarily one who explodes. Um, my my anger does not go outwards. It goes inwards. And so there's a subset of people that we don't even see on the television whose anger goes inward and it flows into either their addictive behavior, their dissociative behavior, whatever, all of which I'm familiar with. (laughs) And so I have to guard uh, with the strength of my emotions, which have been from really just anguish, just anguish because I was never meant to see something like that. And if there is a subset of people who have seen things like that for some time, neurobiologists are saying that trauma itself becomes epigenetic. It becomes a part of who we are. And that becomes to inform the lens through which I see the world. I know that my lens through which I see the world is not gospel truth. I also know the lens through which I see the world has validity. It has validity. And so it's really interesting. I was sharing with my friends the other day. I'm so glad that my father who died in some 30 years ago, my mother who died some eight years ago, my sister who died a year ago, my brother who died, sister died two years ago, my brother who died a year ago. I'm so glad they're not here. I'm so glad. So they don't have to see this stuff. Even as I miss them terribly, I'm glad they're not here. Because the insult is experienced vicariously against the body of people um, and against my body. It's really interesting, Cory Booker, the, the senator from New Jersey, was on TV today, and he says, if you have to fire bullets, fire bullets at this body. If you have to push someone, push this body. And, and he was very passionate. He was very um, sincere about that. So in my experience, um, you don't, there's no way to defend the indefensible. And I hope that you would not try, that I would not try to, or you would not try to, anyone would try to defend the indefensible. When I do that, I am psychotic. I am in a break from reality. And usually I will do that. And I wonder if you're listening to because I don't want to face the depth of pain and sorrow and the implications of um, the inhumanity that was expressed on that particular day. Um, Against a human being, against a black man. And this, you can't separate this from what happened to Breonna Taylor or uh, Aubrey in Georgia. And so it came one, two, three in a row. And um, 
I see people screaming. I literally see people screaming, make it stop. Make it stop. How are you doing, Mike? I'm feeling a lot of heaviness. Um, and when you said that you hear people um, screaming, make it stop, I, I, I saw the video of Mr. Floyd. I um, saw images of uh, the other victims that you've mentioned um, and, and countless people that I've sat with on couches, um, that it's the human experience and certainly it's the black experience that's in the focus right now. And I'm wondering if part of why I don't want to see the indefensible, uh, unthinkable act against a human being is because it reminds me of my own vulnerability and my own inner cry of make it stop, make it stop. Whether that's a cry of a a four-year-old me crying out mama or just the world we live in. Um, So it, 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 uh, it's, it's all sinking kind of internally in me. And now if I can ask a question back, and this, this may sound like we're going more theoretical, but this, um, I know we have limited time, and this emerges out of what we've been talking about. Your questions back and this invitation and requirement to show up to bring something to the table so that you're not a commodity, so that there's no robbery, so it's not transactional, that's really what's underneath the, quote, solution. You know, any any good conversation around any problem will eventually get to, so what do we do? And you've already addressed, you know, their political issues. You can vote, you can protest, you can volunteer, you can donate, but you have to relate and you have to be naked and real. And I think that's something, and you and I are both uh, self-aware emotionally intelligent, relationally educated, um, human resource helping mental health professionals. And we're both talking about how we're prone to dissociation, distraction, turning inward, um, addiction. And if we don't want to do that, imagine what the average person that has far less internal resources that this is a call to human awakening. It's, it's, it's a call to, and I know this sounds so trendy, but it's like, it's a call to um, self-consciousness to be able to be aware of and present with what's really real in me. I think that I'd like to respond to my heart during, because of COVID my heart has gone out to those that are classically addicted, whether that is to substances or to um, to sex or to whatever that's going to be and have no outlet because of the amount of distress that individuals could be experiencing in their homes by not having their avenue of choice outlet could be very, very high. My heart goes out for those who struggle like that way. But you said something in terms of bringing something to the table. What I'm requiring, what I'm hoping was brought to the table is there's an Ethiopian proverb 
that since he or she who conceals her disease cannot expect to be cured. So you're coming to the table with a cognitive question, but it's not a cognitive healing, nor is a behavioral healing. What do I need to know or what do I need to do? It is a spiritual or soul healing that needs to occur, which requires what you said, a nakedness, a vulnerability of this is where I am really struggling myself personally. Hmm. Because if I, if I allow you to come to me with just the behavioral or the intellectual, those things are good, but I'm not sure it's going to sustain itself because it's not coming from what one of our professors used to say from the inside out. Reggie, I'll, I'll propose a thought that just popped into my mind and listeners might say, well, I can't believe this just popped into his mind because it's so obvious. Um, this is with no disrespect or minimization for what's happening right now to African-Americans and what happened to Mr. Floyd and the countless others. But would you say that at the end of the day, at the core, whether it's you and I looking at each other on a computer screen or the however many billions there are now on the planet and that have lived, that at the core, deep down, we're all just afraid? Without question. I think there's tremendous fear in terms of um, the, the word fear means a strong, often unpleasant emotion caused by the awareness or anticipation of danger. And so I would say there's a tremendous fear, which is not necessarily one that is not, it's real and imagined. There may be some substance to it, but oftentimes it's either more real or imagined because of our social conditioning, our family of origins, our own personal choices. Um, and yes, I would imagine that's, that's definitely there. My fear would be that there are, um, what would be my fear right now? My concern would be, not, I don't have a fear. My concern would be that there might be some listeners who might be uh, black or conservative who are saying, you know what, that I didn't challenge um, the white systems of uh, institutional racism or systemic racism on this situation. I haven't really talked about privilege in that situation as well, uh, in, enough in that, in that sense where the plight of African-Americans who are consistently abused on a continual basis. That would be a concern. And as I confess, sometimes I might, but that's not happening now. I might let people off the hook in terms of actually uh, looking at those things which are uh, necessary. My contribution is to say, let's do a personal examination and to deal with the internalized fear of those things that internally you don't want to look at. That's pervasive in all of us as an allegory yeah, yeah. basis for this, for moving forward. Yes. And, and not just looking at what right now are the socially appropriate movements and trends of looking at my racism or my lack of anti-racism or looking at my prejudices and my biases, but even before that, as you've invited me to do, to looking at my really uncomfortable feelings by looking at my vulnerability, by looking at the fears themselves. So, 
you know, if I were to do a experiential exercise with you right now, which we're not going to do, don't make me, you know, and I, I look into your eyes on my iMac. And if I were to say to you, my fear as a white man is blank, and then fill that in just speaking from the heart. And then you were to reflect that back to me. And then you said, my fear as a black man is blank. And we just went back and forth, back and forth, back and forth until we couldn't think or feel anything else. It would just be this vicious cycle where if we kept those inside and if they were never expressed and owned with any kind of safety, um, that one just fuels the other. And it, and it becomes a cycle and ultimately a world in which our, our deepest wounds and fears and even nervous system, as you implied, really contributes to the much, 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 much larger systemic issue. Um, there's a quote that I'll often use, no individual raindrop considers itself responsible for the flood. And I've, I've just really been aware, um, certainly over the last week in the unfolding of events, but but in this conversation with you, um, how big of a raindrop I am. Mm-hmm. And in your loving, caring, frankly, magnanimous presence and spirit in light of, you know, if, if you were to get pissed off right now or start to pound your fist, I don't think anybody on the planet would, would blame you for that as you're talking about these indefensible acts. But your generosity allows me to feel like a really big raindrop and to be okay with that right now, which then allows me to not be okay with it. I appreciate all you said, and I appreciate you honoring the capacity that I have to pound my, my fist or to feel rage or to feel outrage. Um, those are things that I have felt. And um, I'm glad that I have family. I have family, brothers and cousins and extended family where we can talk about things in private and how we feel. And um, my, my whole question, my, my, and I can tell you, my magnanimity is not coming from me downshifting, trying to appease. It's not from that at all. It's actually coming from a place of, like the protesters, I'm really not afraid. I'm not afraid because there is a, you know, the, what I think the black experience has taught is that you might be able to do things to black bodies, if you will, but you cannot take away black choice of personal empowerment or communal empowerment. And I'm not, when I say you, I'm not saying any of your listeners or anything like that. I don't have to surrender and I think that's what many of the protesters are saying. I don't have to surrender to apparent injustice. Well, this has not been a um, a call to activism conversation, and I'm glad for that. Would you take um, everything you've said and everything that you could hope for for a listener with this conversation and what's the one thing that you would want them to think about, which I think you've already said, but which might really be surprising after somebody hits 
pause or stop on their on their player. It's going to be really interesting. It's going to be fun. It's going to say, <clears throat> I want your act of protest to be informed by a stay-at-home order. Will you stay at home in your house and in your own personal silence and watch the video and ask the question, ask yourself the question without any judgment, what goes on inside of you now? And no one is watching. What goes on inside of you? And be open to hearing. That is uh, truly experiential, and again, I wouldn't, I wouldn't uh, expect anything less from you. Um, man, I hope we can continue conversations, and not just about this topic, um, but I really, truly appreciate your time. I know uh, you're busy, you're on your sabbatical, you're quarantined, and I just, uh, I have so much respect for you. Um, so, thank you. I hope that I appreciate the risks that you've given to me and allowing the conversation to go where it was. And I, um, there's a part of me that says, you know what, gee, um, I hope I didn't fail Mike. I hope I didn't fail myself, but it's such a small part. And there's part of me that says, um, I hope I did not rob or, approach you as a commodity. And, um, that's only a small part because it's the, I feel the heart connection Mm -hmm. and I feel this conversation has given me, um, more than it will ever give the listeners. And I sense that I've given you to something. Yeah. I would not, first of all, you have given me the opportunity to not allow myself to be a commodity. I honor your time and, uh, me too, but bless you. We'll be in touch. Okay. Bye-bye. So thank you for listening to another episode of Restoring the Soul. We want you to know that Restoring the Soul is so much more than a podcast. What we're all about is helping couples and individuals get unstuck. You know how some people go to counseling or marriage therapy for months or even years and never really get anywhere? Our intensive programs help clients get unstuck in as little as two weeks. To learn more, visit RestoringTheSoul.com. That's RestoringTheSoul.com.